Father in heaven, we pray your Holy Spirit will be with us today. Uh, Lord, there's a work you want to do, and uh, we want to discover it as we go along here today. So, so lead us, lead us here and lead each of us that are participating today by hearing your spirit through these words to the place that we need to be led today and do the work in our hearts that we need that this Sabbath will accomplish all that you have appointed to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is my wife, Alicia Patterson, and uh, Alicia has played a lot of different roles in churches and other things through the years. We've pastored together um, and a number of different roles, but right now, your current role in service for the Lord is as a professor. So tell us, where do you teach and what do you teach? I teach at Avent Health University, and what do you teach? I teach religion, <laughs> issues in grieving and loss, and Jesus and contemporary society are two classes that I teach every trimester. Okay, so and from that class, you had a couple of uh, students that were with us in the last. I service. did. I was so excited. I had two sitting in second service, and I said, "You are kidding." We just had an intensive where you had to listen to me three hours a day, twice a week. I tell them, it's like, get ready, I'm gonna, it's gonna be like a fire hose. <gasps> and they, I can't believe you came, but they did. It was really neat to have them here. So talk a little bit about Advent Health University since we brought that up, um, where you're a professor. What's special about that school? Advent Health University of Health Sciences is, um, amazing I think my favorite things about it are the students I really do love my students and I love the people I work with the faculty and the staff that I work with I think we have an amazingly gifted and caring faculty and staff and there is a smaller um, relationship in when your classes your your class size. class size is so much smaller than it would be like at UCF and not that I mean, just saying. And what is great about that is this. Our mission statement is educating skilled professionals to live the healing values of Christ. And you can educate skilled professionals anywhere that you have skilled professors and willing students. But to have a skilled professional that's a nurse or a doctor or a PA or an NP or an OT or a PT or a PA, those are some of the things that we offer, be also prayerful in their excellent care of you, care about you as a whole person, that is our goal. And when you have smaller classes, you can really make relationships. Professor Cook there is one of my prayer warriors and best friends, and she and I pray that our classes will be safe places for students and that, that we will be able to show them the love of God and that we care about not just their grades, but their whole person, and that they would come to know Jesus. And eventually that's gonna make a skilled professional who can do that for their patients. Now, now this isn't actually where we're gonna spend our time, but you, you got me thinking of this while we're on this road. Talk a little bit about the students that come there. And I mean, is this, this you know, a lot of Adventist uh, universities, it's 95% or more uh, kids from an Adventist background, and that's a wonderful thing. Is that how it is there, or what's the, what's the ratio? We have there? about 20% of our students who are Adventist, which makes this an amazing place to introduce people to Jesus. So I get to teach a class where the majority of my students have never read the Bible, certainly have never read a whole book of the Bible. And in Jesus and Contemporary Society, they read two, Luke and John. And it is, it's such a neat place. We have a, a real mix of students from all over Orlando, and I get to meet them. They get to be in my classroom. Some of them have never had an adult in their life. If you um, define adult as someone who would actually sacrifice for them, plan ahead for them, um, they've never had that. And I'm telling you, they're finding Jesus to be good, because he is. And we've known him a long time, you and I maybe, I don't know everyone who's out there, but he makes a difference, he brings hope, and it's, really good for them to know that there is a God and they're not He, and that they don't have to be in control of the world, and that somebody that loves them is, 
and that they can have access to his wisdom and love through his word. It, it always fascinates me, this piece of it. So, so she is routinely, uh, trimester after trimester, teaching young adults about Jesus. Is there any program we as a church could run where we could get that many young adults to come to this place that many times who don't know Jesus and give us the chance to teach them? I mean, just it's amazing the opportunity that God has given us with this university and with what professors like uh, Alicia and Professor Cook and, and so many of the others there are doing. It, it's that we couldn't even pay people to come and they pay to go to her class. So we just thank the Lord for the way he prepares and the way all the pieces of what God has given us can work together. Uh, and I look forward to all these ways we can look together and, and, and attracting them. Some of them are right now, I think, did they go to the upper room? They went last night, they couldn't. Oh, they couldn't go this time. You know, one of my students, I was saying, I'm so proud of you. I see that you're really marking your Bible and you've been reading this and I just love how your relationship with God is really growing and this, you're really making this yours. And he's like, well, why wouldn't I? There's so much darkness. Why wouldn't I choose light? Amen, amen. So I praise God for that. And, and, and as you say that, maybe that does give us a good entrance into what we want to talk about. So it would be awesome to have you come and talk about Jesus and contemporary society, and maybe we'll do that another day. But today we want to, we want to focus on your other class, which is issues in grieving and loss. And, and typically we think of grieving in the context of losing someone very close to us that we love. But I, I couldn't help but think as you were saying those words, some of the young people in your class are grieving the fact that they've never even really had positive adult figures in their life. How many places does grief come from? There's probably people in our congregation that have grieved that or are grieving it. Grief is just that sorrow that you feel when you've lost someone or something you love or maybe they were never there. It's just something you know should have been. And it can, of course, we, we um, associate it with the deep sorrow that impacts us after a death. But it might also, it's any transition that we have, anything that changes. It can be a good thing and there's grief attached to it. Certainly it's attached to things like rape or loss of in innocence. Um, there are so many things, a job, losing a job, um, having a friend betray us many, many areas where grief impacts our lives. So getting back to that, the one that is often the, the most forward in our mind, and that is the idea of, of losing someone close to us. We, we come to a place and we look around and, and we think, well, I have, I have hard situations and sorrow in my heart, but everybody else here seems like they're doing really well. I just want to ask you, just this is for your sake so that you can see I want to see the hands of everyone here who has lost someone they love closer than a, a grandparent level. Now that's not to say in certain situations that itself isn't a completely traumatic event, but I just want you to see how many people have lost someone close to them at a level closer than a grandparent. Will you raise your hand? Now look around this room. I want you to look. look hold your hands up and everybody look. You're not alone, are you? We all bring into this room real grief that we have experienced some point in our lives. What does grief do to a person? I'm gonna talk about grief for just a second with relation to death um, because that is one of the most difficult griefs to bear. And um, one of the first things we talk about, you may have heard um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of death, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And not everyone goes in exactly those orders. You might feel more than one thing at a time, but they're good descriptors of some of the phases of grief. Another might be fear. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, I never knew that grief felt so much like fear. Um, but the first thing is just, we call it denial or shock. It's just the what in the world? How in the world could someone we love that we have known that long and has impacted us in that many ways be gone? It doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense to us. 
And it takes us a long time just to wrap our minds around that. And the reason for that is because I was reading Ecclesiastes and this line really struck me. God has set eternity in the hearts of man. It doesn't mean we have an immortal soul. It does mean we were meant to live with him forever. We were not meant to experience death. And the amazing thing to me is that we survive it when other people die that we love so much, that he has given us the resilience and that with him we can somehow survive. But the, the quality of the flourishing afterward really will have a lot to do with how we walk through grief. Someone had once said that um, grief is the, pain, the price we pay for love. I like an aspect of that. Um, grief is gonna exact a price and it must be paid. There was a study done by the Harvard Bereavement Committee, it's called the Omega Study, that said the main thing is you have to grieve. If you're gonna be healthy on the other side, you have to grieve. And everybody wants to run the other direction because it's so painful. And you can just feel like, wow, if I really let myself feel the weight of this loss, I might not survive. And I don't just mean emotionally, I might not physically survive. There are times you might feel like, I just wanna curl up in a fetal position and cry for weeks and I don't have the time. Often will take less time in that intensity than we think. But the first thing is just wrapping your mind around the fact, to my, my student and her sister just said this morning, one of their friends was shot and killed in Oviedo. And they're doing the same thing. They're trying to wrap their mind around it. How can that person be gone? So that's the first stage. And hopefully you will get to the stage. There's feelings of disorganization. There's um, many parts. But eventually we're hoping to get to the stage where we can withdraw all the energy we used to put into that person who is no longer and we can reinvest it in someone or something else. Grief isn't something to fix. You don't fix it. You don't get over it. But you do heal. And the hope is at some point you're going to be able to look at the memories of that person and that person in your mind with more love than pain. and that you will be able to accept the reality of life without the person. And the amazing thing that our God can do if we give this to him and we keep working it out with him is somehow bring beauty from it. That somehow if we will walk through that pain, what emerges on the other side will be a gift. There's a great quote by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and I'm going to phrase it for you. She wrote the seminal book on death and dying in the 70s called On Death and Dying. And she's where we get uh, the five stages of grief from her work with just a lot of terminal people and the people that love them. But she said, beautiful people are not made, are not born, they don't just appear. Beautiful people happen in response to the terrible things that life throws them and the decisions that they make in response to those tragedies. And many of the beautiful things in the world, the art, the music, the literature, many of the organizations that make a difference for people come from somebody really working through grief. I love the quote by Khalil Gibran. He said that joy and sorrow seem like opposites, spring from the self-same well. And the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. And if you go through grief on a surface level because you just don't want to deal with the pain, I get it. I don't either. Nobody loves pain. But if you will actually face it and walk through it with God and maybe a good counselor and hopefully some people who love you, 
what you will be on the other side will be stronger and more beautiful and more empathetic and more able to bring comfort and beauty into the world than you were before. So I, I, want, to, uh, I want to come back to where you're going with this right at the end, but I want to step away from it just a second and, and talk a little bit and hear you talk a little bit about how we help others that are around us that are in grief. And, and it just happens that as we were coming up to this time, and I was going to invite you to be here today, in your Bible reading for the year, you happen to be in the book of Job. And, and there, is there is an example, or three or four examples, of, uh, of individuals who were with Job in suffering. There was the part they did good, and then there's most of the rest of the book. <laughs> Which is 40 chapters, 40-some chapters. Right. So, yeah, it's a lot. so what did you pick up 42. this time when you were going through the book of Job? What can happen to us when we mean well? Well, what was interesting to me is you have the first three chapters, first two chapters of Job that give the setup to the story, and you know what Job maybe never found out, that side of heaven, um, that Satan was... Um, going through the earth and he gets to go up to the council with God and in the conversation God says, have you considered my servant Job? How he loves me. There's this relationship there. And, and Satan's like, yeah, I have. You've really blessed him. And um, I think that probably has a lot to do with that relationship. Let me just make a little change in some of that lifestyle that he's leading, then we'll see what that relationship looks like on the other side. And so God gives him permission. God trusts Job. He really does have a relationship with Job, like he has with you and I, like the whole reason he made us. And he said, okay, we'll see, we'll see. And you know the story, you know what happens. You know that by the time that Job's friends get there, the Bible says they didn't even recognize their friend. He's sitting literally in ashes. And in, in the ruins of dead family and his whole life has come to ruin and using broken pottery to scrape the sores on him. And for seven days, they do a great job. They just sit with him in silence. And then Eliphaz opens his mouth to speak. And Job gets to speak first. Eliphaz speaks in response. But what struck me this time, I remember that they're called his miserable comforters. Job himself calls them miserable comforters. But... Um, what struck me this time is the source of Eliphaz's words. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles or on the screen, this is Job 4.12. Now a word came stealing to me, Eliphaz tells Job. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on mortals, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. And a spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh bristled. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. I just want to ask you, congregation, does that sound like a holy angel of God who's visiting Eliphaz? Yes or no? No. Now, when the angels come, they do inspire fear. We know this because what is the first thing angels always say to humans? Fear not, or don't be afraid. But there's a difference in falling in awe and fear in front of a holy angel and what's being described here. So this is the source of what Eliphaz is going to say to Job. Can mortals be righteous before God? Can human beings be pure before their maker? Even in his servants, God puts no trust. And his angels, he charges with error. Those of you that know about the great controversy between Christ and Satan, anything interesting to you about those words? What stands out to you about those? 
Well, first of all, Job isn't saying he's completely pure. He's just saying, I don't know that I have done anything to deserve this, this reverse in fortunes. I was doing what I always did, and, and now this, I don't understand. Could you, we've been talking, and we have a relationship, and I was doing everything I could for the poor and the destitute and the widows and the orphans, and now this, I don't understand. And he's not hearing anything from God, and he's calling for a mediator. He's calling for an audience with God. Not because he thinks he's completely pure, but because he doesn't feel like what he's done has brought this on. And Eliphaz is saying, yeah, God doesn't even trust angels, much less his servants. Okay, that is a lie from hell. The first two chapters tell us God is trusting in his relationship with Job. But Satan, formerly Lucifer, has an ax to grind. And here he is, and he has a hatred for God that he is spewing out through a friend on Job in his suffering. A little bit later says, miserable comforters, Job says, are you, miserable comforters are you all? Have windy words no limit? What provokes you that you keep on talking? I also could talk as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. What's your favorite line for Job? It goes along with this. Yeah, Job's reached the point where he's just done with it. And uh, if, if this is the response you ever get, sometime you're trying to help somebody, know that you've come off the rails. All right, so here it is. You got that text, Alicia. I can't remember what it is. What's the text of it? There it is, Job 12, 2. No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. If anybody ever says that to you when you're done talking, they you did the not man. hear you. Okay? You obviously know it all. Yeah, that's like, shut up, know it all. <laughs> okay, and isn't it funny though? Because it happens so often, people in grief appear to those of us who aren't in grief to be irrational, filled with bad theology, spouting inappropriate things. And so what do we do? We seek to correct them, to tell them wisdom. And as I was looking, it, so the last, he has the three miserable comforters and then Elihu. And Elihu says, um, you know, I've been listening to you. I was, I was hoping to learn some wisdom from you all because I'm so much younger, but I better have my speech now. And Elihu very vociferously defends God. And he does it with the, the self-righteousness of, I mean, even with the, the fervor of David against Goliath. He, he's really defending God. He's very good at defending God. But he's not a very good comforter. And actually, Job doesn't need someone to defend God. He could use some comfort until the one that he's had a relationship chooses to speak to him again. And, um, yeah, I can hear you. What do you want to say? Well, so there's this powerful interaction, and you see this, this total failure of the comforters to be comforting. Yeah. And the irony is, a lot of what they say is true. Yeah. And, and so I just want to put this on you when you think of yourself in the context of helping someone who is in grief, there is something more important than being right. Right. Though the words nearly choked me to say it. How could there be something more important than being right? Well, the, um, <laughs> I'm a mom and I'm a professor, a teacher. So I kind of see any moment as a teachable moment. Any moment that comes along, there may be a lesson. But what I am learning and I hope have learned, somebody else's grief is not my teachable moment. If they are, if they've been raised in the church, they probably know everything I know. They probably heard all that. Certainly it's not a time to bring platitudes. And I don't really know what they need to hear. Something I kept noticing with Job's friend, they're not really hearing him. They're not listening to what he's saying, and they are addressing things 
that he has not brought up, and they're answering questions he has not asked. And the best thing that they can do is lead with silence and let the person who is grieving set the agenda for the conversation. So, so this is good. Let's go down this road here. What should I do if I encounter a close friend that's grieving? What should I do? I think the first thing is pray that God will help you be able to enter that sacred space with a lot of, I can't think of the word, a lot of being careful. So I'm not supposed to stomp around until I say the perfect thing that will make them feel better from now on. Exactly. And that you may not ever have the perfect thing. I'm gonna actually give you some words that I think will work to get you in the space to help them know I'm here as long as I need to be and I care, but we need to know that grief is personal. Different kinds of griefs are different and people are different cultures. You might even be dealing with someone with a different religion. They might be a different generation. They might be a different gender. Genders grieve differently. And so I would spend some time in prayer and then thinking about your person. If they're very cerebral in life, they're gonna be cerebral dealing with death. If they're very spiritual, you know, who is the person? And then at some point in it, you might even ask them, how can I support you? What feels like support to you? What have people said that have really, you wish nobody had ever said to you, and I'll try to avoid that. You can even say, if you can get into that space, would you teach me how to walk with you during this time? Um, One really great um, question that I learned while we were in the hospital uh, waiting a lot of information that we didn't know yet about Nathan because he was still in a coma, Chaplain Jay Perez, Pastor Jay Perez, Dr. Jay Perez, he's been a lot of things. Right now, he's actually, remember Ted Hamilton who talked two weeks ago, he works as vice president for institutional ministry to outpatient Um, people and uh, institutions within Advent Health. He's been a pastor and a chaplain, and I remember he asked good questions, and he helped me talk. And um, one time when my dad was uh, facing a life-threatening operation, and there was a lot of stuff going on in his life at the time, I, I texted or called Jay, and I said, could you give me, you were so good, can you give me some words or some questions that I could ask my dad, and he said, ask him, um, you might consider asking him, what does this mean to you? And I remember that's a question he asked me when we were in the hospital. And so I remember being in the car with my dad and just saying, what does this mean to you, this, this whole operation, everything you're going, what does it mean to you? And my dad saying, I am... Um, it's, it's so big, I can't even put it into words. I just. And then he found his words and he talked for about an hour. And there was healing in words, not mine. But as he spoke out what was going on inside and, and then could listen and see it, there were so many things he worked through as he spoke. So that was a big, good one. Um, What does it mean to you? Another one was from Bob Wilson, also a member of our church, who has been a chaplain and a professor, several things. He started Hospice of the Comforter and um, was the director of it for many years. I asked him to come speak to my issues in grieving and law students, and one time he told this story of a man who did not believe in God, who was dying, and the hospice nurse was carving a place. She felt like Bob needed to come visit, for Bob to come visit. And finally he said, okay. And so he and Bob are there, and he's like, okay, like, chaplain me, do your your chaplain thing. And so the thing that Bob said to him was, Actually, I really would like to hear from you. I wonder if you would just help me understand what is it like to be you right now? Could you just take some time to help me understand 
what you're going through? And again, that was a door opening question. And a lot came out that was healing to have spoken because grief is like the layers of an onion. And it will bring you back every time there's a, there's a Christmas maybe, or there's a birthday, or there's maybe you're a young person who's lost a parent at a graduation, at the birth of a child. You're gonna mourn again. But there's another chance to have the great physician do some healing while you're open to pain and bring you to another level of healing that you couldn't have had 20 years ago because you weren't at this stage. Every time you tell your story in a safe place, another level of healing takes place. A third story um, is one where the Holy Spirit taught me. Um, I had been at a worship at the university where a young man spoke of the death of his three-month-old baby to Sid, sudden infant death syndrome. And he spoke of it, brought tears to our eyes and his, and he had fought through to a great relationship with God still. But I just felt like I wanted to um, just love on them a little bit. And I invited them to church. They had a church, but they came to our church and um, over to lunch. And we had a great time with them, eating and talking, and they had a beautiful little girl. But um, as we were sitting in, in the living room, I just thought, I don't want to let the important conversation pass by that might take place if we actually heard on this topic. And so I just said to her, this has been such a great time together, but I'm, I'm just constantly aware that your little boy died in January. And I just want you to know I'm aware of that and I'm wondering how you're doing. And if you want to talk about it, we would love to listen. And if you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to talk about it. And she said, thank you so much for saying that. She said, we have people in our own family who have never mentioned his name again. It's as if he never were. And we have perfect strangers who will come up and drill us like they're reporters getting a story. And she said, I just so appreciate that question. She said, I don't, I don't feel the need to talk about it right now. But I, I love knowing that if I did, I could. And then she proceeded to talk about it for an hour and a half. <laughs> and during that time, one of the things she told me was this. I was a Christian. I went to church every week. I went to a women's Bible study every week. But do you remember the parable of the sower and the seeds? She said, I think I was like the soil with the weeds and the thorns. And Jesus said the weeds and the thorns were the busyness of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And I was just so busy. But when I walked into that room and I really realized that my baby was dead, I cried out to God and it was as if somebody took a heavenly weed whacker and they just whacked down all of those weeds and there was nothing between me and Jesus. And I saw him and I ran to him. And he, she said, and I almost feel worried about the time when my grief isn't so raw and I have had more healing because I feel so close to him and so held by him right now. So there's some words that you might try. The main thing I want you to know is that it's not gonna be your words, but your presence that makes a difference, that you care, that you will show up, that you will take the time to learn what feels like support to them. Because I think that there are, there are couple of reasons why people don't show up for people who are in grief or in a Job-like trial. One is just busyness. Uh, another might be just selfishness. But I think it boils down most often to two places of fear. And one is people who have never really walked through their pain with God. 
And if you haven't walked through the pain, then you do not want to enter the house of sorrow with someone because you're afraid. Because all of those things that you've been pushing down or denying or avoiding or medicating might come up and you might not survive. So I'll greet you outside the door and I'll wave from afar, but I am not going in there. And the other is the person who maybe has been through grief. Or maybe they're not too afraid, but they're to be with you, but what they're afraid of is I might say something wrong. I don't know what to say. I don't want to make their pain worse. I don't want to mention it because if I mention that death, then I might bring up sadness. And the fact is, the death is what causes sadness, not your bringing it up. And there are times, sure, when we are more feeling it than the others, but it is never very far from the surface. And to show that you're a person who will be a safe place, who won't try to teach you what you don't want to know from them at that point, but will take cues from them about how to support them, I think if you can show that and not take offense, listen, when we're in grief, we are not our best selves always. And you um, need a wide bubble of grace for other people when you're in it, and you need a wide bubble of grace when you're entering that zone. Because um, if you're gonna take offense at somebody who's grieving, you kind of miss the point. Because it's not aimed at you. And if you're in grief, if you can, or you know, people would say, um, oh, you were so, you know, you told everybody about your cancer and didn't you get a lot of unwelcome advice? And I just said, you know what? I just took it as I love you. Because that's what they meant. And so they came and told me about it. I just received it as I love you. And I thank you because I felt loved. So those are, some, those are some things. I think if you can just get into the place, that, okay, maybe, you're, maybe you have the gift of helps and you'd like to get in and do something. How about calling and saying, I'm gonna come mow your lawn on Friday. Um, is Friday a good day for you or would you like another day or is there anything you want me to avoid? Is there any other yard work that you want me to do while I'm there? Okay, that gives them enough freedom of choice and autonomy to make some changes to your plan. It also lets them know you're willing to come. Maybe they say, I don't really want my mom lawn mode, but if you'd be willing to do that, I could really use help with laundry. And you're like, well, let me talk to my wife about that or whatever. You can work something out. Grief is so all-encompassing. It's like you constantly, have you ever had a computer where you had a bunch of screens open at once and the little wheel of death came on, wow, 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 and you're like, oh, wow. And you were finally able to get out of it by closing down some of the windows. Grief is a window that is always open. And it's always taking energy. It's taking emotional energy from that person. And that takes energy from their mind and their ability to make decisions. And so you're offering something concrete but giving choices. They may not be able to come up with how you can help them or they may be too shy to ask. So those are some ways, I think, to be in the space of someone grieving in a helpful way. So we could talk a long time on a lot of these, but we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to draw this together here, but there's a, there's a place I wanna land. I, I love the graphic that was chosen for today. If you need to, to hang on to that image in your mind to remind you, if you're gonna help somebody, you're that hand on the outside, okay? You're just gonna, you're just going to grab, see how he's got his fingers rolled down. I don't think you're, we have to perfectly right. do it. Here we go. It's about getting it right. <laughs> see, here's the deal. You know what? That's a great thing. It isn't about perfectly doing it. It's about having the hand. <laughs> so take that hand. The hand says a million things, even when the mouth is shut. So let that hand be the comfort. In the presence, you know, just the presence of another person. Um, when my friend Carrie's husband was killed in a car accident, I just couldn't stay away. She's a big family. 
She was at each of my children's birth and we lived all over the country. And I didn't know if I was needed or not, but I couldn't stay in Florida and live my life while Reg had just been killed. And so I talked with Jeff, he got me a flight, I flew there, because I called and said, you need, you know, ask your mom if she needs anything. No, well, this is Carrie. Oh, Alicia's so busy. She's a mom and a pastor's wife and a professor. I don't need to bother her with my stuff. Well, I'm bothered. And so I flew there and I stayed with friends and, they, and then I texted her when I got there and I said, Carrie, I'm staying with Chuck and Barb Randall and I've got food and a place to stay and you do not need to worry about me. But I could not stay in Florida. I'm gonna be praying for you here. If you can think of any way I can help, I will hold babies, she's got grandbabies, I will fix a meal. I'll clean your kitchen, I'll help plan services, I will cry with you, I'll be strong with you. I'm here, and if you don't need me, do not worry. I just had to be closer to pray for you. Show up in some way. And I wanna just share with you quickly some books that I have read in the past couple months that have been since fall that I love so much that have been a help to me and I think it would be a help to you. They're going to go kind of fast because I can tell Jeff needs to move on. But The Needs of the Dying by David Kessler, highly, these people are living until they die. So they still need, they need you in different ways. This is great. The Needs of the Dying. Atul Gawande, Being Mortal, amazing, especially if you're dealing with someone who is facing the mortality through growing old. Um, on Death and Dying, this is the seminal work by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the 70s, the first one really to address death and dying in such a beautiful way. Listen to this on Audible, it's fantastic. Um, Option B by Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant. She lost her husband unexpectedly at a heart attack. She's the COO of Facebook, and I was reticent to read this. It, it's fantastic, I would highly recommend it. Another one, A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer, who in one fell swoop in an accident, his mother, his wife, and his daughter were killed. Unimaginable. He has something to say because he's been there. And it's fantastic. And the last one, recommended to me by Ted Hamilton, Tracks of a Fellow Struggler. It was a preacher whose uh, like 12-year-old daughter died of leukemia. And um, a sermon he did during it, right after it, and then revisited the topic several years later. So those I just wanted to leave with you. And then, Maria, will you put up the last um, slide that I have with my, if you want to share stories of what support looked like to you during a time of grief, what really is really helpful and what wasn't, I would love to learn from them. And we'll just leave that up there, that's my, um, email address. So, what did you ask me before? <laughs> so, we, we gotta, we've got to close, but here's where I want to close. We've talked about how you can help, but I, I'll bet you that going through this, you have remembered your own grief and your own scenarios of sadness in your heart. And I don't want to walk away with, from this with it being about someone else while you're hurting in your heart. Yeah. Now, obviously, we're talking most about one-on-one -on -one being there with someone, but I believe this is a, a holy space and a holy time right now where the Lord is speaking to our hearts on this issue of the sorrow we brought in here today. All those hands. You saw all those hands. I believe God can do a work for us today in our hearts, in that carving out of the grief. And so, so I want us to close with this. The question is, what would you say to the ones here today in grief? So I approach this with much reticence to, to speak into a group's life about grief. And I really pray that the Holy Spirit will bring to you whatever would be most encouraging to you wherever you are in your process and whatever your grief is. And having said that, I would just, um, 
I would just say, I would encourage you to walk through it honestly. Go ahead and face the pain. Let it carve into you. It will be bone-breaking. It will, it will gut you. And there will be room for the Holy Spirit in your life and for creativity to make a difference in a broken world than there has never been before in your life. If you keep up here on it, that's how you go through. But if you will actually not sublimate or medicate or avoid or deny, and you will go through the treacherous journey that feels like you may not survive, and you will take your body, your mind, and your soul in the hand of God, and hopefully there'll be some people being churched to you, and hopefully, if you need it, there'll be a good Christian counselor, but if you'll just grab that hand, and you will walk through, and you will let the arms of God hold you. While you're free falling, you will never fall so far. I love the text that says the everlasting arms will be underneath. Kick at God. You might kick, you might beat against his chest, you might yell at him, but stay in the room with him. I wanna tell you what you already know. There are gonna be times you are crying out to him and you will not feel his presence. But if you will wait on the Lord, and you will not take one of the 3,000 things that Satan will offer you to get out of that horrible place fast. Anything you take, you take sex, you take alcohol, you take workaholicism, you take Netflix, you take whatever you take will become your Lord and Master and only God is a good one. Amen. Anything else is gonna be cruel at some point to you. If you will wait on the Lord, it says it right on the front of my beat up Bible here. Those who wait for the Lord will what? Yes, it's the only place. And I promise you that out of your misery will, be, will come ministry. That's not why you go through it, but you're gonna enjoy it. Somewhere down the line, you're gonna enjoy comforting others with the comfort that you have been comforted with. And you will be a wounded healer. There's never been one that has walked this earth that wasn't wounded. And you'll have something to say that's worth listening to when you say it. And you will have just this attitude of, of love and of healing when you visit and when you walk through it with that will bring hope. Allie Fulbright sang at second service. She sang um, a beautiful new praise song that is based on the old hymn, It Is Well. And it brought tears to my eyes as I watched beautiful young Allie sing her heart to her heavenly father. And what she said last night to our young people was, it is well with my soul, not because it is well with me that my dad died. It is well because my heavenly father is with me. It is well because he promised I am going to make all things new and there'll be no more sorrow and no more death and no more tears and no more crying for this world will have passed away. Do you know that the only way that God could help us was not to sit up on his heavenly throne and say, yeah, that's, that sucks for you, doesn't I told you that would happen if you sinned. He got off his throne and he entered our pain and he became vulnerable to it. And he took a naked body and he let them put metal and nail him to a cross. And he knew the pain of betrayal. And who knows, he probably knew the pain, I'm just gonna be real with you because there's a lot of reality in this audience, of rape. Those Roman guards, who knows what they did to him. He knew the pain of suffering. God knows what it's like to lose a child. It's an incarnational thing that we do when we get out of our comfort zone and we enter someone else's pain. And you will be someone who can do that like no other 
if you have taken God's hand and gone through it with him. And who knows what beauty will be brought to a broken world through what you will do and who you will be. Pray for us. Will you bow your heads with me? Father God, you're a good father. You are the God who ran after us, who would not leave us in the devastation that sin brought. You told us the wages of sin is death. You told us don't eat from that tree. I don't think you want to know what evil will bring. You don't want that knowledge. But you didn't ever and you still haven't given up on us. And you don't leave us alone even though we feel alone sometimes. And you made us promises like all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And like I will never leave you or forsake you. And like nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so we rest on those promises. Maybe not because we can feel them. We may not even be able to feel your presence right now. But to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of life. You have proved your faithfulness by loving us with your blood. And now we just turn our faces to you and we ask that you would shine on us and that you would arise with healing in your wings and that you would give us the grace to wait in darkness until you come in a way that we can see again. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.